Thanks everybody for, for joining me on uh, this podcast, Five Clubs Conversation. Uh, I'm Gil Hans, golf course architect, and uh, we're going to be doing a, a program monthly here where we talk primarily with hopefully a lot of interesting people. And it's golf course centric, not necessarily golf course architecture centric, but really a conversation more about the golf course and what people love about golf courses and, and how it ultimately hooked them into the game. Uh, I, I want to make this fun. I really want to have a good time with it. Uh, we're going to have people come on from the music world, the food world. We're going to talk about any different types of topics as, as we go through this. And, and I also want to stress, I'm not a journalist. I'm not trying to break news or trying to create stories or, or anything. I'm just hopefully providing a forum where people can talk comfortably about golf courses and, and a topic that we, we all love. Uh, recently, Ron Reed uh, posted on, on Twitter, somebody sent it to me, it was during the holidays, he's, is Gil Hans busier than Santa Claus? And I, I think the answer is unequivocally no, we're, only, we're, we're not as busy, we're only working on one continent at this point in time. But it, the, the message resonated is, okay, you know, why am I doing this? Why, we're obviously very busy with, with the day job that Jim Wagner and I have, but I thought it would just be an interesting perspective uh, to give to people, to talk about things in a way that there's the uniquely qualified to do so, to talk with people about any number of different topics about you know, how you develop a golf course, how you build a golf course, how you set up a golf course for architecture. And, but ultimately, there's no gotchas. There's no trying to establish any sort of uh, name or, or benchmark in, in this world. It's really just a, a different perspective on golf. And then another part of what we'll, we'll do is I'll just do a quick talk about where I am. Um, you know, it's a kind of a where's Waldo type thing. As, as most of you know, Jim Wagner and I practice golf course architecture primarily from the seat of a bulldozer or the seat of an excavator. And there'll be some times, hopefully te technologically, we can figure out how I can actually broadcast from the seat of a bulldozer. But I think we're, we're ultimately looking at trying to create something that We'll draw people in, talk about what we're building. Like right now, I'm sitting in La Quinta, California. We're working on a an as yet named golf course, and then maybe that's a topic. And how do you name golf courses or clubs? How, where do those ideas come from? What are the best ones we've ever been involved with, et cetera, et cetera? But it's it's a beautiful setting, uh, a private club that we're working with, uh, with two owners, Eddie Q, Irving Azoff, wonderful guys. Uh, excited about creating something truly special for this desert uh, environment down here. Golf only, no housing. Uh, beautiful, as I said, set and pressed right up against the, the mountains. Um, it, the great thing about working with people like this is their enthusiasm, their excitement. Irving was out yesterday and we had a great look around and just seeing him get excited about the, the creation and the process and how we ultimately go through these things, I think is exciting. Other times we'll be coming from places we're doing restorations, renovations on this uh, bit of a merry-go-round that we do. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it will be compelling and exciting and interesting for people to listen to. Uh, it's I, I still have a day job, so we're going to give this the best effort we can, but I'm excited to be part of this, this group, working with Gary Williams and Jay Billis on, on the Five Clubs Conversation Network. And uh, anyway, I am excited as my first guest, a dear friend and somebody who's obviously been very, very involved in, in the world of golf course architecture from a setup perspective. And as a golf course architect, all you can do is ultimately create a grounds to play a game. And hopefully within those grounds, you're providing enough opportunities for the setup to shine, that the golf course can theory be set up to be as easy as you want it to be on any given day or as difficult as you want to. It's that sort of variety or a blending of them to kind of come up with easy holes, hard holes. And that ultimately always comes from golf course architecture. And it comes ultimately also from uh, superintendents and presentation and maintenance and all of these things go together to create a set of circumstances that the guys who do the setup, like Mike Davis did for a very long period of time for the USGA, have the opportunity through incredible amounts of study and effort to figure out exactly how they want to present that golf course to the best players in the world. Jim Wagner and I have always been very, very intrigued by that. Uh, we think it's a, a very interesting part of what we do. Uh, we had the opportunity at the Olympic course down in Rio to provide uh, what we hoped was a significant degree of variety for the setup of that golf course. 
And we were so excited that Kerry Haig and Dave Garland were able to set up the golf course and utilize an awful lot of the thought process that, that went into it. So when you're watching a golf tournament, you're thinking about the presentation of the golf course you're thinking about, but ultimately the architect, we have to wash our hands of it once the tournament starts because our work is put into the hands of the people who are doing the setup. And it's also put into the hands of the golf course superintendent who's presenting and, and maintaining the golf course in the way that it needs to be maintained. It's a fascinating thing to think about because we ultimately either get a lot of the credit or conversely, a lot of the blame for the way things go on the golf course, but it's, it's hopefully a great relationship as I had with Mike Davis and I continue to have with, with Kerry Haig at the PGA and with John Bodenhammer and Jeff Hall at the USGA, the ability to have conversations to talk about ultimately what our goals are for the golf course, what we saw either from an original design perspective or what we saw through the study of the, of the restoration of these golf courses that might ultimately help them to do the best possible presentation. So please enjoy our chat with Mike and uh, thanks. So thank you very much for uh, joining us on this uh, very first of, of my five clubs conversation. I'm very, very excited to have as my first guest, my dear friend, Mike Davis, who's had a long career uh, with the USGA and, and is now practicing golf course architecture. And, and Mike, this is, like I said, the, the inaugural program, and it may be the last if we don't do a very good job with it. So uh, <laughs> no pressure at all, but it, hopefully it's just going to be fun. No matter what we do, we, let's have a good time with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, first of all, my friend, it's great to be with you. And, and as you said, we, we do go way back. And Gil, it's been, it's been so gratifying to see all your successes over these last, I guess it's been three plus decades. Um, you know, you, you've really become kind of the gold standard in golf course design. I mean, I've watched you build new courses. I've watched you renovate. I've watched you restore masterpieces. <laughs> You're still doing it. And, you know, you've been in a great stretch with championship courses and not just U.S. Opens, but others that we've worked with. And it's been fun to actually work professionally with you on some of those. We worked together with when you were doing some work with Fox when uh, they had the U.S. Open package. And then, uh, you know, you and I have been uh, partners for years at Pine Valley for the member members <laughs> and our families know each other. So, listen, I'm honored to be your first guest and it's great to be with you today. Well, thank you. With an opening like that, you are my best guest ever, guest ever. <laughs> without a doubt. You're, you're doing a great job. So thanks. Yeah, I was, I was thinking back to that. I see the, the painting over your shoulder there. And I think uh, we're probably the, the guys in the golf business who played the least amount of golf. And it shows when we get together for that. But we did win. Um, I don't even want to call it a plate. It was more like a saucer. I think one year it was whatever the smallest plate you can put at a place setting on the table is. Uh, is what we won, but we've always got that, uh, at least we can hang our hat on it. Yeah, you know, when we play on that, I, I think you and I probably talk about the golf course and its wonderful design and, and some of the great things that a designer, you know, over a hundred years did. And, and we think about that more than actually trying to trying to shoot a low score. And maybe, maybe that's the reason for our <laughs> lack of success, but we have a great time. No, I'm, I definitely want to concentrate on the course and not my pitiful game. <laughs> but I mean, you've you've had a great you've actually had a, a, a golf career. You know, unlike me, you've actually you know, you were the 1982 PA junior champion. You were uh, you know, played college golf at Georgia Southern. You know, when what we really want to talk about is just golf courses. When did you first start to realize the golf landscape was something that intrigued you? And when did you really start thinking about golf course architecture, not necessarily as a career, but just as sort of, okay, somebody thought this golf course through and it makes me think in the way I play it. Yeah. You, you know, it's such an interesting question to almost ask anybody who, who likes golf courses and design. Um, you know, probably like you, mine goes back to when I first started playing the game. I, I, I suspect that somewhere around seven or eight years old, my father took me out with cutoff you know, clubs. And I grew up in South Central Pennsylvania in Chambersburg. And 
we were members of Chambersburg Country Club, which is interesting in the sense that it's, it was a par 74. It only had two par threes, and it was laid on this really neat piece of ground. Um, rolling property, but then it had some meadows to it with this beautiful, what's called Conica Jig Creek running through it, where really some strategic holes in how, you know, there, there were holes built then that you could never build with the setbacks now for, you know, environmental reasons uh, and wetland reasons. But I very early took a, a liking to golf course design. And I, I don't know how I knew it, but, you know, listen, in, in sport, it's the one sport where the arena really does matter. It's, you know, not that, you know, football, basketball, baseball, you know, hockey, not that there's every arena is the same, but, but generally speaking, those sports um, play on an arena that maybe the floor is a little bit different or the turf's a little bit different or the wind might be different. But what makes golf so unique is that every golf course has a very distinct personality in fact within the golf course each hole has its own personality and that for some reason always intrigued me I mean I, I I can remember doodling golf holes when I was very young playing junior golf I mean very early junior golf and so um and then you know growing up in south central Pennsylvania my father's uh family was from the Pittsburgh area so you know as a junior golfer I remember seeing Oakmont Fox Chapel, Pittsburgh Field Club, trips to Philadelphia, which I, I know you're from, and I, I consider Philadelphia one of the greatest golf, golf, golf course cities in the world, not just in the United States. And to see those and some trips down to Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. And my father used to go with a group, you know, for 40 years straight to Pinehurst. So as a youngster, I kind of got to know Pinehurst. And that just it, it just whetted the appetite. And, and I think as I think about my 32 years with the USGA, I got to see most of the world's, not all, but most of the world's great golf courses. And I'm as intrigued today as I've ever been. I mean, I just, I think it's fascinating that the different topographies, whether it's sandy or mountainous or or um, up against a you know body water like an ocean or tree tree lined it's just it's remarkable and you get so many different climates types of grasses that I just I still to this day I'm much more interested when I play golf about who I'm playing with and having fun in the golf course versus you know my what I shoot that day or you know my clubs or my swing or things like that so I've just had an interest going back to when I was very young and it's interesting. It's not changed to this day. I mean, that's great to hear. And you're right. The, the unique landscapes that we get to, we get to practice our craft in, but we also get to play the game in. Right. It sounds like you saw so many wonderful examples early on, which is, is great. I'm sure that that's informed you as you go forward. And certainly, you know, one of the interesting things I always think about is how we were influenced younger and how that influences our aesthetics what we think a golf course should look like, how we think it should play, and ultimately what that does in our brain and how long those things last with us. My first you know, introduction to golf was with my grandfather at Southward Ho and A.W. Tillinghast. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you know, it's not in the pantheon of Wingfoot or Quaker Ridge or those places as far as Tillinghast right. work was, but it was still well thought out, well designed, well presented, a scale, very sandy, you know, the Sahara bunkers, the whole thing that the Tillinghast would have. And I think that the elevated greens there's something about those early golf experiences that just continue to resonate yeah gil it's interesting because th that is a great point that to me i've always tended to like golf courses that just sit on the land that don't look manufactured and i think listen virtually every golf course gets to some extent manufactured a little bit because as you rightly said a green may sit up in the air or you're you're tucking a tee in to a, to an area, but courses that, that sit on land and land that are, that's good for golf. I mean, I think, you know, everybody likes to see a little bit of elevation change on a golf course and it doesn't have to be, you know, dramatic, but I think seeing that, seeing types of trees, seeing that, you know, perhaps bodies of water, um, are always interesting, but I, I do think that from my eye, I've always liked natural looking courses and it's not as if, I mean, you think about say a Pete Dye golf course, which, you know, he was a genius 
in terms of design, but his were incredibly strategic designs, but they also look very manufactured, uh, which is not a negative. I mean, I think back on, you know, we all tend to love Charles Blair McDonald courses, Seth Rayner courses, and those are, you know, while parts of those sit very much on the land, you know, the, the, the green complexes, the bunkers are, are, you know, tend to be a manufactured look, but it's like a wonderful manufactured look. And so it, it is funny how those, those courses early on in your younger years do, uh, do tend to uh, be the ones that you, uh, you tend to gravitate to and you think that's, that's how golf should be. Yeah, I love the story Ben Crenshaw tells about, you know, growing up in Texas, obviously, and playing golf and the wind and the, the openness, et cetera. And then when he went to, to the country club for, for a national tournament and just the light bulb, he said, went off. He said, wait a second, I've never seen anything like this before. This, you know, the rock outcroppings and the trees right. and the landforms, et cetera. And so it's interesting when those aha moments hit you, it's like, okay, this is the light bulb goes off in different ways. And so from your perspective, you know, growing up in Pennsylvania, all these great traditional old golf courses, you know, would certainly be prevalent in your experiences. Yeah, Gil, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I think about playing in, you know, some Pennsylvania Golf Association events where, I, you know, Oakmont comes to mind out in Pittsburgh. What I remember about is, you know, going back, whatever, 30, 40 years was the putting greens, those complexes. And, you know, even back then they were incredibly fast. That, that's Oakmont's DNA, its personality, but it's not just how fast they were. It's how strategic they were. We would actually play to one part of the green to get to another. You try to hit your bank, your ball up onto this ridge to feed it to a back left hole location or whatever the case I mean, I think about Marion, the times in Philadelphia, getting to play that when I was young and very different from Oakmont, but strategically and, and it's, it's brilliant. And, you know, I know you've you've done tremendous work at Marion and, and you're going to do some some work at Oakmont. And, you know, those two just being a Pennsylvanian stick in stick in my mind that they've had a lot of influence. I can remember playing when um I guess I was 15 or 16 years old the first time playing Pine Valley. And I don't think, Gil, there was ever a golf course where it just from the start of the golf course to the end of it, I was more mesmerized than Pine Valley. And listen, it's not a it's not, it's not a golf course for the faint of heart. It's hard. There's a lot of force carries. But if you're somewhat proficient at the game, there, there's just no mediocre hole there. And I just remember thinking I was in all of that golf course the first time I saw it, played it. And uh, even to this day, I still go around. And I know you feel the same way. Yeah, it, it's it's true from everything you've mentioned. So you, you grow up with these golf courses and then, you know, maybe in your brain, but maybe not. Now you're actually setting them up for major championships, you know, yep. Marion, Oakmont, et cetera. I've always been intrigued by setup as architecture. We've talked an awful lot. Jim and I talk about this a, a ton. You know, when you're dealing with tournaments, um, it, we believe you know, once the tournament starts, the architecture is out of our hands. It's ultimately in the hands of the setup person like yourself or Carrie Haig. Um, and that hopefully if we've done our job, we've provided you with enough opportunities to utilize the golf course features and the architecture to allow you to create varied setups and to react to conditions on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that these great old golf courses certainly give you those opportunities. When you were setting up golf courses for these major championships, did you look at the architecture? Did you look at the thoughts you were talking about with Oakmont, where you've got to play a ball to this side of the green to get it to that? And how did those influences work with you while you're setting up courses? Yeah, Gil, I mean, I think you set that up brilliantly because I have long felt that great design just gives you such, um, it elevates the chance of great drama happening. And, and I think back on just being a student of history, it seems like the better the golf course, the better drama you get, you tend to get, the better champion you tend to get. And I I do think that great design uh, just it, it listen golf is not just about striking a golf ball it's not just about making putts there, there's a mental element to it and I think that 
the better the design, the more the player has to think about what he or she is doing to get their ball from a teeing ground into the hole as few strokes as possible. And so I listen, I always enjoyed setting up courses that uh, offered options where it would dangle the carrot. You'd have some risk reward or you could you could, as you rightly say, you could play different tees, different days. I never really cared for golf courses where the designer dictated exactly how you were going to play it. In other words, there's a 25 yard wide fairway. You have to hit the fairway or you're in high rough or in bunkers. I, I like the idea of, should I hit a driver? Should I try to carry a bunker? Should I try to carry a corner, curve it around? Uh, should I lay back? Should I try to get it as far up the hole as I can? Should I try to go for a tucked hole location back left in the green? Um, might I try to go for a green and two and on a par five? I mean, all those things, I think they, they force the players to think. And in a competition, thinking, you know, listen, the most, most people just do not think as well under pressure as they do when they're not under pressure. And, and I've always thought some of the greatest golfers of our time weren't, weren't just the, the people who could strike a ball, golf ball well or make the putts, but they could think the best. I mean, I, I, I've long thought that Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods were the best thinkers in terms of the male side of the game. And I, I've been around both of them a lot. I've watched them play. And I think that when you get them on really good design golf courses, their minds are going. They're thinking about how I want to play it. They don't just show up at a championship and you know look at a yardage book and say, this is, this is how I'm going to play it. They, they've thought about how they're going to get around a golf course if the whole location's back here, I'm going to go for it or I'm not going to play for it. They've thought about, okay, if there's a north wind, a south wind, how am I going to play it? If it's firm, you know, if it's, uh, you know, how am I going to play? I mean, there's, you know, you think about back hole locations with a soft green with a wedge in your hand are really hard for a good player because they have to take spin off the ball. Or if you think about a front hole location that either it's downwind or you have a long iron in your hand and it's fronted by a bunker, you know, are you trying to send the ball way up in the air to stop it? And, and do you want to take that risk of, of uh, playing it I, I, around the greens where a designer can create options? Think about Piner's number two, where those, those greens that sit, you know, turtleback greens that sit up in the air, um, when you miss a green there, you'd almost think, well, that's going to be an easier recovery for a good player because um, there's just not high rough there and they can, they can get up and maybe there's not a bunker between themselves. But the reality is when you give a really good player um, a choice of saying, do you want to pitch a ball, putt a ball, run a ball, it kind of gets in their head and they're, you know, they have to think through that versus if you just miss a green and you know, you're going to take a, uh, you know, some kind of lofted and, and hack out a high rough. It just lessens, I think, the options a player have. And I, Gil, I think you said it great. I think what a good design does is for somebody setting up a golf course, you almost work your way backwards. You start with what's the whole location you're going to use? What kind of clubs are they hitting into the green? Is it a lofted club, a long iron? Um, and where, you know, might there even be an angle? Angles are such an intriguing thing in golf, whether it's the approach shot or a tee shot. And I think that the more, the more the designer can just offer up choices, inevitably the, the better, more exciting a championship is. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I was fortunate to be part of five U.S. Opens uh, with the Fox team and, and really enjoyed every bit of it. But I think my most lasting memories are the ones where, you know, getting up at five, well, four thirty-five in the morning and meeting you guys, cause you're getting ready to go out and do set up on the golf course. And I've learned so much. And, and some of the things maybe you could talk about it is you guys come into tournaments, super prepared. You know, there are no, there's, you haven't left a stone unturned. You've talked about conditions. You've talked about whole locations. You've identified whole locations and you have, you know, various tolerances within where those are going to be set and watching you guys, rolling putts and I, I remember the first time I think you asked me to hit a couple putts when you guys were looking at and I, I could barely hold the putter I mean it was just such an exciting <laughs> honor to try and all right what are these gonna how are they gonna put it's the you know having the smart levels out there looking at percentages of slopes and and watching the the 
greenkeeping team and, and just the almost their hands shaking as they're cutting the cup when you're watching the cup cutter go in and just have, yeah, right. or the guys who are super confident, just like, you know, they put it in, but all this stuff that goes on while it's still dark, but there's so much prep leading into a tournament. I mean, years of preparation. Yeah, they're, they're really, I mean, Gil, think about some of the times, I mean, you and I, I mean, next year's US Opens at the Country Club in Boston, great five original clubs of the USGA and Great history to it. I mean, arguably one of the, I mean, in anybody's top five U.S. Opens of all time has to be that 1913 U.S. Open when the unknown local Francis we met wins uh, against, uh, you know, the great Harry Varden. And, um, and, and you think back on that where you and I went, I mean, what, what is that? Maybe four or five years ago, we started looking at the country club. So you were the a record for the club and I was still setting up the U.S. Open then and we, we literally went hole by hole and started thinking okay how do we want to play this you know are, are, you know do we need any more length off the tee given what's happened with technology and where is the drive zone and is it you know is it perhaps too wide for you know that given group of players for what we're trying to do for the U.S. Open but so you know what's interesting is that that does start many years in advance in fact I, I would say that before we entered the U.S. Open site, we were thinking about what needed to get done, if anything. And, you know, was there any tree work that needed to be done, new tees, or, you know, the bunkers need a little refreshing, whatever the case might be. But so you start very early on and, you know, it's kind of a high level, how's each hole going to play? Then as you get closer, there's so much the golf course superintendent does in terms of getting the course prepped right to get firm fast conditions and because listen it's i i would argue that setting up a u the men's u.s open is the hardest event in golf to set up and i say that because that's the one event where it just seems back a hundred more than a hundred years where people are expecting that event to be hard the players are expecting it to be hard the players are tense about that they don't want to be embarrassed and the fans are expecting it. Everybody's expecting it. So it's it's the only event where people actually look at the score and they care about it. If if a U.S. Open is too easy, we get massive complaints. At, or I say we, the U.S.J. gets massive complaints at, about that. But if but if you go over top and you set up something too hard, where good shots are not being rewarded or there's some unfair aspect, you get rightfully criticized. So we use it's interesting. We use you were getting into it a lot of science when you set up a golf course you're looking at moisture levels and greens you're looking at evaporation for the day you're looking at where the wind is to come from how you know my turn you know nothing's harder than you know the wind start out of one direction and and turn around 180 degrees and come out from the other side you think about the whole locations you think about where the ground should be um and, and listen, beyond wind, which is the really the, you know, the in, invisible hazard to the game that really for a good player is it challenging because they have to think about, you know, how is it going to affect their ball, how they should flight it. But firmness to a golf course is so, and I've long felt that if you can get the right firmness with the right design, that's everything. Because you want a player to think about what, whether it's the teeing ground into the green or recovery around them, you want them to think about um, what's going to happen when their ball lands and with very soft conditions, you know, the best players in the world, male and female, they're so good. I mean, they're such athletes and they're so, there's so much precision that if, if the whole, if they're 167 yards from the hole, they can hit a ball 167 yards, but it's when you're okay, you're downwind you know, maybe it's a downwind crosswind, the greens are firm, you say, where do I have to land the ball for it to release to go back? And that's when you really get into great course management, shot making, on your golf ball. And I think that, again, I would just go back, it all starts with the golf course and its design. And then, you know, you work towards, you work towards, as you say, that week of a championship setup, and then you just you got to be nimble. And you also know, things don't always go right. You, you think certain things are going to happen. You, listen, it, it can even be a, 
mistake, you know, where you don't get enough water down on it, or you get too much water down, or, or you think you're going to get a wind out of a certain direction and you never get it. There's, there's a lot of things. I mean, I think back over 30 years of doing it and there's, you know, it's, it, listen, there was a guy named PJ Boatwright who was involved with uh, hiring me back 30, more than 30 years ago. And he said to me once, he goes, Mike, you know, nobody is ever going to pat you on the back if you got 71 to 72 hole locations right. And he's so right. All you need is one one, and that's all that's going to happen. But listen, you strive for, you know, perfection, you're at it, but it's, it was a fascinating thing. And, you know, what you really want to do, I think the way you put it is the way I would put it, is that as a designer, you wanted to do everything you could do to basically hand it off to the setup people and them do their thing. Well, we are the same way. The setup people, you want everything you can to, to create an atmosphere that, that, real out the best in the players your shot making the mental side of the game recovery controlling the spin and trajectory of your ball thinking right you really want to say as a setup person i just want to turn it over to the players if i've done it right do your thing and then let them you know showcase everything that's been done and uh, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't well i, I agree with you 100 percent on firmness we talk a lot about, you know, you can't make greens too fast for these guys. You can't make courses too long, but they work their whole lives right, to produce a predictable outcome in their golf. Know that if I hit the ball 167, I need to hit it this way. If I need to draw it or fade it, et cetera. So they work, 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 work. And firmness is the only thing that really doesn't give them a predictable outcome when they're not sure if it's going to bounce twice and check, if it's going to if it's going to check after one bounce and those opportunities or the ability to get it there, I think are ultimately the best long rough as well. And, and so that they can take, you can't spin a ball, but I think firmness is really something that doesn't get talked enough about in golf course setup. We always talk about meters and speed and length, et cetera, but it's ultimately firmness and you know, as well or better than I do, that ultimately comes down to mother nature and Thing that none of us can control whether we're building a new golf course and we get something wiped out because of a rainstorm or uh, right. i think oakmont in 26 on wednesday may have been the best conditioned golf course i ever saw in my life going into that tournament and then all of a sudden heavens open up and now you got four championship conditions that you've just had you know four and a half or whatever many inches of rain they had come over it it's got to, it's frustrating from a design standpoint the builds only imagine from a setup standpoint you've done all and then some golf courses if you get enough rain they they really never quite recur in four days um this there's you know having us open in middle of june um there was a there was a reason a lot to go to coastal california because we knew it was never going to rain so you get the golf courses the way you wanted you know, whether you're in Los Angeles, San Diego, Monterey, San Francisco, or, you know, up in, up in the Pacific West, because it wasn't going to rain that time of the year. You know, I, listen, there's, there's courses that are sand-based, you know, like a Shinnecock Hills, like a Pinehurst, where you, you've got the ability to get the golf course back in firmness, maybe not in a day or two, but over a course of a few days, you will get it back. If it's heavy soils, you're, you're right. And, Listen, for that level of game, these guys, you know, and, and the gals are so good and so precise that, um, you know, it's interesting when you watch them play, they they want to know exactly when they hit a shot where their ball landed. So worst thing you could ever do if you're playing a you know practice round or something with a touring professional is fix a ball mark for them because they want to know they know how they hit the ball with what club. They know whether it was downwind into the wind and they want to know, you know, how many feet did that ball just release because it all plays into how they're going to play. And, and so firmness is everything. And that's why, I mean, I think I know, you know, listen, as a designer, I know, you know, that getting a golf course that's built on sand is so much better than built on heavy soil, all things being equal. I mean, it's, listen, there's some wonderful courses on heavy soil and there's some obviously some things you can do on heavy soil areas but but 
on balance, you just like balance conditions. Yeah, absolutely. So you said as a setup, you do your job and you turn it over to the player. Your time setting up golf courses, what did you learn about the mindset of, of touring pros, both men and women, and either their understanding or appreciation of golf course architecture? Yeah, Gil, I mean, I think you said it earlier that they they expect predictable conditions. They want consistency. So what, what I found with design is that where you and I, I mean, I know you well enough to know that you, you and I both like some quirkiness to design. I mean, we don't mind a shot that's blind or a shot that's semi-blind or, or, or a feature that you may have to play around that could, you know, kick your ball one way or another. But the, the touring pros, by and large, not all of them, they, they love predictability. They want consistency. So, you know, use my example we were just talking about. If they know an eight iron is landing on the green and releasing 10 feet, they want that to happen green to green to green. Uh, again, if it's downwind it, into the wind, they'll they'll modify that. But, but um, you know, I found that some touring pros really are into golf course design and some could care less. Um, you know, some really get excited when we went to certain venues for the U.S. Open. Um, others literally just said, I don't really care. My job is to try to get the ball in the hole as few strokes as possible. And, and so, um, but I, I have long felt that if you had an interest in design as a real good player, it probably would help you because you'd notice things that a designer like you would do and say, you know, I, I designed this hole to be played this way, or I've designed different options to play different ways, depending on how it's set up, where the whole location is, the, the weather conditions. And so I, I think that, you know, the tougher the golf course in terms of, you know, the setup, the more, you know, acute, some of those design features get to be, you know, faster greens, the greens, the undulations, the slopes just come alive and firmer conditions. If you miss it in, you know, around the greens, you know, how much is your ball going to roll out? So, you know, by and large, I think that touring pros are just like golfers in general. Some really have a liking with design and others, um, you know, are, are so-so with it. And, uh, but I, I think on balance, anybody that really is a student of golf course design by and large, that's an added, you know, arsenal as it's, it's an added, you know, weapon in your arsenal. I, I would argue. I agree. We were, I remember we were walking the 16th hall at Shinnecock uh, prior to the, to the U S open with one of the top tour caddies, um, and we, we asked him how, what percentage of golfers in the field would be able to identify or even know who William Flynn was. And he said, 3%, maybe. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he was like, kind of, right there that uh, there was not a lot of uh, acknowledgement for these great old, great old uh, golf course architecture, or at least an understanding of it. Yeah. So did you have a favorite course that you would set up for a for major championship, whether it's Men, women, amateur, was there a favorite? Favorites for maybe different reasons. Um, you know, we talked about Oakmont, loved those putting greens. Absolutely loved it. I just found them intriguing because they were, because of their speed and slope and size, they, they were very strategic. Um, you know, Marion was awful, awful special because of its history and, and the nice ebb and flow with short holes, long holes, and you felt with the short holes, you could really get aggressive with hole locations. And I'm not just talking about putting them, you know, four paces from the side. I felt like you could get a little bit more percentage slope on a hole location there versus a hole that you were hitting maybe a five iron in. Um, Pebble Beach was always special because, you know, you you knew you were going to get firm conditions. You knew you were going to get wind. And, and they're, they're the smallest greens in U.S. Open. Um, Pinehurst was intriguing, particularly after Core Crenshaw did the restoration before um, the, four, the 14, 2014 back-to-back -back with the men and women U.S. Opens because it had more width. It had more angles. It didn't have Bermuda rough. It just had the you know, the sandy natural areas with wire grass. I thought that was, you know, very, very intriguing. Um, but, you know, there, 
I think maybe the, as I look back, what was so neat about the job is that it was different every year. I, I'm not so sure I would have gotten bored with doing the same course every year. And, and it, certainly we would have been better at it because we'd have had more data and we'd known how it plays in certain weather conditions um, and where you can goose it a little bit and where you need to be conservative. But I think that just, I mean, it was, listen, as I look back and it's not just U.S. Opens, it was U.S. Amateurs and Women's Opens and Women's Amateurs, Curtis Cups, Walker Cups. The, the one thing we got to do is we went to truly the best golf courses in the United States. And so that, that was always a treat. And, and again, it wasn't just U.S. Opens. It could be the U.S. Boys Junior. And so I look back and that was, you know, as, as I think about the things I got to do over three plus decades, seeing all those golf courses close up, um, I, I will say it was one of the, one, was one of the great um, treats and honors that, that I had. I mean, I, meeting a lot of people, obviously, that were special to the game of golf, uh, you know, awful special too. And that includes designers. Um, but, but I think just seeing the golf courses in the United States and for that matter, I mean, I, I did travel the world. I mean, Gil, I was down when you did your, you know, your masterpiece down in, down in South America for the Olympics. Uh, and, you know, you think about that. I think, I mean, I officiated, I don't even know how many, probably 20 British Opens. So I saw a lot of those. I officiated some President's Cups. And, and so there, there's, you know, traveled the world. And, um, but that, that I, I, as I look back, that really was the best part. Of, you know, one of the best parts is seeing these great golf courses. You know, you talked about sort of an understanding of a golf course. And, and you would revisit places maybe a decade later. And then there would be changes, obviously, in technology and players, et cetera. So were your setup notes from 2000, the early 2000s at Oakmont, were they relevant in the 2016 setup? Or you know, what sort of history did those things teach you? Or did you have to basically relook at the golf course because of the changes over that decade? That is a great, you know, you, you would think that you'd learn something. But I was really, I guess, really surprised at how little previous opens really helped. And, and I, I don't mean they didn't help some, but they would help less than you would think. Um, you know, you take, take Oakmont, we keep using that as an example, but the 2007 U.S. Open that Angel Cabrera, I mean, I worked the 1994 U.S. Open. In fact, I worked the 1992 Women's Open there, the 94 U.S. Open, the U.S. Amateur, number of U.S. Amateurs. So every time you were on that course, you were learning things. And but um, as, as I think back to, say, 2007, which was an awesome U.S. Open, that, that the, the drama and the intrigue on that one was just dynamic. I I used a lot of that setup three years later for the Women's Open that Paula Creamer won. Um, and because it was close enough where the greens truly were the same size. And, and you say, well, what do you mean same size? But, you know, from 2007 with the men's U.S. Open there to 2016, the size of those greens were not the same. So the fronts were different. So you couldn't just plug in the same hole location. You know, certain quadrants you were and, you know, you get to know those greens well enough that you knew that <laughs> you could barely find a hole location say on the 10th green, there was so much slope on it. But, um, you know, what you knew in general is that, for instance, the 17th hole at Oakmont, you knew that you could create intrigue on that hole by creating a drivable par four. You knew it. And, and it, listen, it changed the outcome in 2007. It almost changed the outcome in 2010 at the Women's Open. And, and so it's, you, you would learn from that, that, that you've got an opportunity on certain holes to do certain things, but, but the golf courses, you know, change. I mean, listen, that 1994 us open at Oakmont that Ernie Ells won, it was a tree line golf course. It, it had pines. It had Oaks. By the time we get to 2007, if you were a tree at Oakmont, you were a nervous tree because you probably weren't going to be around for much longer because they just wiped everything out. So, um, you know, to be interesting, when the USJ goes back to Marion for the next US Open, um, you know, how much would they use from 2013 when we, we had it there? Probably some, but Gil, you know, you since 
done a masterful, masterful job of doing a restoration there. You've got the greens are slightly different sizes. You took them out to their original size. They're, they're rebuilt. They drain better. The bunkering's better, you know, across the course. And so, you know, they'll, I'm sure they'll look back, but they're going to, in some ways, have to start from scratch and, and, and kind of build that setup from, from the ground up, so to speak. I'm sure everybody who's listening to this knows that you retired last year from the USGA and you've struck out on a new venture. You've formed a partnership with Tom Fazio too. And just to clarify that, you know, Tom has been in the business for a long time. He worked for his uncle, George Fazio way back when worked for his uncle, Tom Fazio and his, his father, Jim. So it's a, a long line of, of, of Fazio's, but he's been doing his own thing for a while. And the two of you have connected so you've been doing this for a few months now. How has it been? Is it different? Is it better? Is it, you know, what are you learning about golf course architecture in your first few months? Yeah, Gil, uh, in some ways, I'm a kid in a candy store. I mean, listen, you've forgotten more than I will ever know in this area. I've seen a lot, but listen, I, I'm living in Jupiter, Florida now. I had a wonderful, wonderful 32 years at the USGA, but I was ready to do something else. And, and I've always wanted to do that. And, you know, you and I have talked about this over the years and um, you, you've been so encouraging. And so, um, you know, Tom is only a few years younger than me and he's lived in Jupiter. That's where my wife and I live now. And so it was just a wonderful opportunity to say, well, let's partner up. And listen, Tom has, just like you have, great um, technical skills on not only how you design a golf course, but how you actually build a golf course. And there's some, there's some things where, you know, I've got some knowledge on, but I, I'm a novice in other areas. And so uh, very much looking forward to the future. And, uh, you know, it's, it's I, I, the learning curve steep on this thing, but I'm trying to be a sponge as much as I can. And, you know, I've, I've been asking you questions and uh, we, we actually have a project that, um, uh, you know, a new club, he and I have been talking about trying to create a a club in the greater Jupiter Hope Sound area down here in Florida. And uh, that's going to happen. Uh, we've, we've partnered up with a, with a few, Mike Pascucci, who owns Sabonic. Uh, he and Steve Ross, who uh, is, is uh, you know, a very successful businessman. And those two basically have created a joint venture. And uh, Tom and I are involved in that and more will come out, but it's going to be a, a, a golf club that has three 18 hole courses. There's no housing with this in terms of it's not a real estate play and there will be short, short course experiences, but we're incredibly excited about that. It's only about 15 minutes from my house. And uh, so we're, uh, we're, you know, I thought I'd get a few months off to kind of catch my breath after the USJ, but that's not happening so far. So uh, time will tell, but we're excited about that project. That's great. I've I've heard about that project, and I'll tell you, tr you take it to heart when you can sleep in your own bed on a golf course project that doesn't happen an awful lot. Enjoy it. Um, yeah, really that's what I hear. It's 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 uh, not normal to get a project that's only fifteen minutes away from your bed. That is a first one, so I'm I'm uh, gonna relish it. Great. All right, now we're gonna go to uh, to something here that. Uh, the five clubs conversation has done, and it's sort of a, a rapid fire, five uh, lightning round questions I've selected uh, with the advice of my big staff uh, here that I have working with me on this. So if you're ready, I'd like to fire a few questions at you. Okay. Can I pass on any? <laughs> nope. <laughs> First one will be easy. Red or white? Uh, white. Wow, white wine. I thought you were definitely. Uh, I thought you were. Oh, you, 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 you. This was wine. I thought you like. What, oh, come, come on, on like. What oh, I'm def me? definitely red. Sorry about. It. I didn't hear the wine part. There was no so wine I'm de part. Definitely red, but I will do white. Okay, there was no wine part. I figured that was just implied. Red or white? <laughs> or one of those. <laughs> You're asking me which color I like better. <laughs> All right, favorite sports team? Pittsburgh Steelers. All right. That's a pretty good one. You've had a few successes there. I'm sure that was fun growing up watching them play. Yeah. And I actually was a fan before they, they won their first Super Bowl. But don't yeah. tell Steve Ross that who owns the Miami Dolphins. <laughs> I, uh, that would be a perhaps a bad uh, professional uh, outcome. So, okay. 
Great. Hey, so I'm a few years older than you are, but we're of a sim similar generation. So I got to ask you, is it new wave or classic rock when you classic were growing rock. up? Classic yeah. rock. And so then you were down in Statesboro was, you know, that was got to be Almond Brothers, got a little Southern rock going on at that point in time. There was, yeah. But, you know, then there was some, uh, you know, I guess it was always influenced by the University of Georgia where there was some bands. Uh, there, there's one I can't think of right now, but uh, but so, yeah, there was country. I, you know, growing up in South Central Pennsylvania, country, I, I didn't hear much of it, but uh, not that I listened to it a lot, but I, I do like country. So was it REM? Was that the band? REM. That's, okay. I couldn't think of it. You're very good, Gil. <laughs> well, I'm a big music fan and probably in that time frame, new wave more so, but now it's more a little bit classic rock. And I did rock the kind of, not the flock of seagulls hair, but the little bit of a mullet, the sort of new wave mullet in the eighties, which is disastrous. Flock of seagulls. There's one yeah. from the early 1980s. Exactly. All right. When you were growing up, was there a player a golfer that you tried to imitate as a kid? Imitate? Uh, probably no, but the ones looked up to were probably Arnold, Jack, and Johnny. Great. All right. So you've talked about seeing golf courses all over the world. Which is number one on your bucket list to see that you haven't seen yet? Let me see. So mine are, uh, I'll just give you a little second to think. Uh, the ones in New Zealand. I mean, I haven't seen Terra Edi. I haven't seen any of those down there or Tasmania. Um, yeah, or I actually have. And I, you know, I almost said, because I've been to New Zealand, I've seen Terra Edi. In fact, I've seen what Corin Crenshaw and then Tom Doak are going to do for the two, the second and third courses there. And it is spectacular land. And I've been to Tasmania, but, but listen, New Zealand in terms of a country, if you told me I had to get out of the United States, that would be where I go. It's my favorite country in the world. I mean, again, if I had to leave the United States, uh, New Zealand would, would be where I'd like to go. All right. Well, my friend, I can't thank you enough. You've set a very high bar for future. Well, hopefully there are future guests on this, this podcast, <laughs> but I've really enjoyed talking about setup. Uh, as I said, one of the more interesting parts of this crazy career that I've had has been able to, to be involved in, in just seeing how you guys work and setting up and the time and the effort and the energy expended in doing it and trying to make the golf course look great, but also, you know, provide a challenging test for, for the player. So thanks for talking about that with me. No, uh, Gil, it's great. And, and, you know, you and I could talk about it for hours and hours and we have talked about it for hours, but uh, thanks for all you've done for me. And more important, thanks for what you've done for the game of golf. Cause Gil, you, when you eventually leave the world, you will indeed have left the world of golf better than you found it. And uh, you've, you're, a, you're a, not only extremely talented, but you're just a wonderful person to be around. And I, I treasure the friendship. Thanks again to Mike Davis for jumping on with me today. Hopefully you enjoyed it and we'll see you on the next episode of Five Clubs Conversation. Cheers.